0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a French conductor who has had a truly international career. Over the last 25 years or so, he has held title positions in France, Belgium, Germany, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom and the United States. It's a great pleasure to welcome Stefan Deneuve. Stefan it is lovely to see you again uh, we chatted not so long ago it's wonderful. how are you? I'm great exhausted because
1: I'm just in the end of a big transatlantic move so I don't have a back because I I held all these scores and books for the past weeks and a week and a half but the house, I think you agree with me, will be beautiful. And uh, we are delighted. I'm speaking with you from St.
0: Louis in Missouri. Yeah, it, it, it is a very, very attractive room. You'll uh, The listener needs to know that Stefan's sitting at a grand piano with scores and a bust of Beethoven in a gorgeous, massive room. Um, So yeah, bravo on the move. I know last time we chatted, um, which we'll come to later with your time at Brussels, Phil, and I was there doing some work for you and the orchestra, that, you, you know, you were about to move, and it sounds like it's gone well. You did work for music, and I thank you for that. <laughs>
1: thank <Awesome>. you. <laughs> and, uh, uh, no, all is all is well indeed. And uh, you, you're right, it's the first time in my life that I kind of feel I have a small room, um, chamber music concert hall at home. I mean, it's, yeah. quite, a, it's quite a big room, you know, America has big size rooms, and um, um, it sounds terrific, actually. So I'm very excited to now study score at the piano and sometimes play for some friends, hopefully, and family uh, in this beautiful
0: room. We will come back to score study later. But for now, let's go back to northern France, where I know that you were born. And I ask every conductor, and you'll be no different, Stefan, how music first came into your life and into your world. Did you come from a musical family, parents' musical at all?
1: Uh, not not really my father
0: did play a little
1: bit of tuba at some point uh, mm-hmm. but um uh, and that sounds to uh, thanks to this um uh, amateur uh, brass uh, harmony orchestra woodwinds orchestra that um uh, that I started actually learning some trumpet actually mm-hmm. cornet to be precise but uh, i was 9 but the big thing was when i was 10 and uh, I was at a Catholic school in north of France, and there was an old nun playing the organ in the little chapel of the school. And I was fascinated by the sound of the organ. So I kind of hid there to listen to her. And uh, she saw me and and uh, was asking what I wanted to do. And, and I said, I, I love the music. And she gave me some piano lessons. And uh, uh, so, uh, thanks to her, I
0: then started uh to play the piano and went to the conservatoire very soon. Mm. And you were a pianist for local choirs and things like that. So you were involved in rehearsals early on. Very early on. And I think it is so fantastic that there is
1: this vivid amateur life uh, um, in north of France still today with uh, a lot of amateur bands, but also a lot of amateur choirs. And I had a great time Mm. accompanying them. It was actually a male choir. Uh, and uh, what we call in Germany a Menachor and and it was really a group of uh, I would say 60 or 70 uh, men that had a great spirit and and I learned a lot of things there, music but also uh, camaraderie and uh, fun and and sometimes even you know drinking (laughs) so (laughs) it started
0: thanks to this amateur choir. I don't know what, how to chronologically order this, really, but I'm just going to go with how I wrote it down on my book. Uh, dear listeners, know that I've got my little book to my left. I've written that You really have said in interviews the past that you had one major mentor. Oh, yeah. Somebody, somebody called André Dumortier. Is that how it's pronounced? He is indeed the man. On my piano, there is always, so
1: it's not yet re framed because uh, i i traveled with it with me i didn't dare to put the frame inside of a truck extra so i traveled with it on my own uh bag for about a month <laughs> all <laughs> over the world so I, I will reframe but this is actually also a wonderful paper um that he offered me where he kind of explained sound and creativity on a piano and um, uh, and he is indeed uh my Yoda, let's yeah. say. my every, every musician has, of course, many people who influence them and often one main master, and that was him. It's a man I met when I was, I think, 15, and... Uh, uh, He just made me understand that um, I was not arrived yet, even if I could move my finger fast uh, at the time, but uh, that I was at the start of a huge mountain to climb and that I will certainly never see the top, Mm. but that the journey was just uh, uh, more important than
0: the arrival. And did he? get involved at all? I mean, obviously, uh, as a piano mentor, but um, did he get uh, involved at all when, at the age of 17, you formed your own orchestra and started to conduct? Was he involved in all facets of music making with you? Definitely. Let's Mm. say he was a man from
1: uh, the poetic world of the end of the 19th century. I mean, he was born in 1910 and was formed by himself, by great masters that were in direct link with the very poetic romantic 19th century and uh, uh, he he definitely had an approach to music that was very much into sensations into colors into meaning and so of course this went way beyond just one instrument which is the piano and in a way I credit him to be my best, also uh, conducting teacher. Even if we never spoke about beating patterns or anything like that, but it just made me have a, a, a broad view on music. And mm-hmm. uh, the only thing I would say is that, uh, ironically, he was a little bit disappointed that I became so interested in the world of the, the orchestra because he wanted me to uh, to be a pianist and. Um, he had big hopes, and and he wanted to prepare me actually for the big competition in Belgium, which is the Queen's A B E D competition. Mm. And uh, I disappointed him because I said, "Look, I won't present this competition." Uh, but way after, long after his, uh, his passing away, I, I I look in the sky, and when I was conducting the competition as a conductor, I said, "Like Monsieur Dumortier, you see, I am doing the Queen's A B E D competition." Okay from the podium, but
0: still I'm doing it for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just going to briefly stop at that orchestra that you formed, the Jeune Ensemble Orchestral du Nord Pas-de-Calais. Yes. Um, yeah, my French is terrible, but that's about as near as I'm going to get. Oh, uh, no, it's very good. Uh, uh, why conducting? Why? For, obviously, you did the thing that many conductors do, which is if I can't conduct somebody else, I'm going to start my own group. What, what was it that about conducting that was drawing you even at that age of 17 before you even get to the Paris Conservatoire? Oh, just for one single reason.
1: Uh, I'm a very social person and I don't deal well with being alone. Mm. And uh, The piano is a great instrument, but you're often alone with it. And so I started chamber music. I had a little trio at the Conservatoire um, very early uh, when I was 16 or something, 15, 16. And then indeed i wanted just to expand music making with a group and i did form le jeune ensemble instrumental du nord pas de calais mm. as you said brilliantly uh when i was very very young and it was a great experience uh to have all those very good musicians young musicians from uh from the three actually main cities in north of france lille roubaix and tourcoing and um and it was a way to uh to experiment many things and see how difficult it is <laughs> <laughs> and it lasted only a few years i'm afraid but that was a, a great opportunity to to learn every side of being a conductor mm. including sometimes putting those the chairs and the stands where it should be and organizing the rental of a concert hall or whatever
0: so uh, it was a, a early very very precious experience I've had other conductors come on here who've formed their own groups either at the same time as you or later on and they've all said it's not just the conducting it's not just the hiring the musicians and hiring the parts. It is as you say it's putting the chairs out for the audience it's booking the the van to take all of the bigger instruments there it's it's organizing the whole thing which teaches you things about life not just about waving your arms around in front of musicians and yeah true it's very true been there done that <laughs> um <laughs> paris conservatoire who was your teacher you went to study conducting i i, I think is that right yes
1: also some other classes i yeah. i had also a class um uh, which is was coaching for opera working with singers accompaniment as well history of music um so but but indeed the, the main two classes were conducting class and uh, and and vocal coach uh, yeah. i mean uh, not vocal coach, sorry, pianist. I mean, coach, coach pianist for opera repertoire. And uh, so my two teachers there were Jean-Sébastien Béraud for the conducting part and uh, Serge Zapolski uh, for for the, the piano part and and the, the vocal part. And but I, I would say, uh, no offense to uh, both of them, but uh, the best school I had in Paris was not entirely the Conservatoire, but just the opportunity to go sit in rehearsals mm. of uh, the Orchestra de Paris. I was going there all the time and I thank the Orchestra de Paris for letting me actually going there early before I even became the pianist of the choir there uh, because I, I could just see great, great, great conductors and see what to do and sometimes less great conductors and see what not to do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well- I- that and that is probably more important that's come up often in the podcast you know yes we can all learn from the greats but actually you learn an awful lot more from the ones who who you know who crash and burn frankly and you know even if you get to know a few of the players and find out why what is it they said it can be one sentence can't it
1: oh it's a difficult job and you can it's like a castle of cards you can win everything in one sentence. Uh that is for, for sure true. Uh that said, you know, I said you learn what not to do. I wish. Um, I, you know, I, I think you still continue to learn all the time with uh this great, amazing, you know, living structure that is an orchestra. So mm. Yes, I still have to learn a lot. What not to do? Believe me,
0: <laughs> I'm nodding because I, I, I am, I'm in agreement with. We you know my own career and with the things I do and say. Um, you just mentioned it becoming the repetitor pianist for the chorus of the Orchestra de Paris, and before I pressed record, I mentioned to you that I couldn't believe then in a hundred and whatever ten, eleven, twelve episodes but the name i'm about to mention which is somebody who was quite important that you you got to meet and here and he he helped you in the, at this stage uh, sir george Shulte. i cannot believe that nobody's really talked about him at all in in any way shape or form in the previous 111 112 episodes so how did that come about meeting sir george Shulte and and how did he help you Well, I'm surprised first, indeed, because
1: for me, it's really like a very inspiring master uh, and and extremely important interpret, uh, both for opera and for uh, the um, symphonic and opera, both together. Um, So I was scheduled, indeed, with the chorus of the Orchestra Paris to play for the Missa Solemnis of Beethoven, which is a very hard piece to play on the piano. It's totally not pianistic. So... Mm -hmm. Believe me, I prepared myself uh, as much as I could, and I was very ready to be eyes in eyes with him when he started this kind of palm. You know, uh, and look, I, I won't be fakely modest. i'm I'm not sure that I ever been a-, a good pianist, whatever. But I have one quality. I kind of know where to play for for a conductor. I- I- very early on, I kind of understood the the strange delay between the gesture and the reaction of an orchestra. So I think I pretend that actually he was happy with my following, mm.
0: uh, uh,
1: and so that went very well. And he, he he spoke with me a little bit and 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 showed me sing on the piano, and I had a very good rapport. All good. So that was the first experience. Uh, then I played for him uh, as well for some concerts. There's no chorus there, but I was still uh, often engaged by the Orchestra de Paris to play for all the type of rehearsals. I. Played for uh, Bluebeard Castle of Bartok, mm. and uh, I have a funny, funny story there because uh, uh, Sholty was always staying at the Ritz in Paris, and uh, I was a kind of poor student, uh, and and I had to, I had no support from my parents at the time, and so I had really to, to work for my own living, and so I was lucky enough to to uh, to play for the Orchestra de Paris, but also some very bad choirs and whatever and. Singing lessons. So uh, I had no idea what a great palace was. Uh, I never visited one at the time. And and then, suddenly, what is very strange is Scholti uh, asked to do the rehearsal with Julia Varadi and Laszlo Polgar, I think were the two soloists for this piece, um, at the Ritz. So, okay. And so here I am. Uh, I think it was at the end of the morning or early afternoon, I forgot. But um, I entered the Ritz and said like, well, um, there is a real soul plan with my socialty there. And they accompanied me to the night bar of the Ritz. I remember we had to go down and, and I was amazed by the luxury of the place. It was very impressive to me. And there was a guy doing the vacuum cleaner uh, <laughs> uh, at the time and they had to stop him, of course, because it was too loud. And, uh, and it was a night bar with a grand piano and uh, it was so rich and so thick you know um like uh, uh, uh carpet something like that that it was extraordinarily dry mm-hmm. but uh, we rehearse there with indeed the soloist and um and and he was um uh, happy, I think, with my playing somehow. And he, he heard from Peter Diamond, actually, that I was a, a student at the Conservatoire. So he said, like, my ah, dear young boy, you play the piano, but you also conduct it. Yeah. So he said, like, okay, this is my score. And um, just study it, study what is written, and tomorrow you'll conduct for me at Playel. Uh, yes, I had a heart attack. Indeed. <laughs> If he serious, I mean, for me, conducting the orchestra de Paris at the time was like, you know, just uh, unexpected and and very, very, very impressive. So I had a very short night. I studied, indeed, the score. He wrote very heavily in the score. There was a lot of things. And uh, I had preciously his score with me. And the next day, at the start of the rehearsal in Playel, indeed, he said, Steve, he was calling me Steve. And I uh, said, come. And I jumped on the podium and he went in uh, in the in the audience and i conducted a part of brubeck castle especially the big um what is it the fifth door i think yes. the one with the, the big chorale uh i had the time of my life the time of my life and uh uh and 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 well it went well the orchestra was friendly of course knowing that i had shorty in my back and um and voila we finished the week and then uh, the great thing is uh he invited me to be a He's uh, pianist for Don Giovanni at the Paris Opera and uh, and and also for the recording that was done at the London Philharmonic uh, at the time. And uh, yes, so I kind of assisted him, and it was incredible because he was one of the rare conductors that really, really go often listen to uh, to to uh, the sound in the audience, which is a great advice indeed. And I'm doing that myself a lot, um, and so he was giving the baton to his assistants very often. And uh, uh, that was extraordinary because I, I got to conduct the Paris Opera, uh, the London Philharmonic at a very early age, in Rio Sol only, of course, but that was very, 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 you know, uh, important for me and, and gave me a lot of great information about the world of great orchestras.
0: I think I read it was it was this morning when I did my homework on you, as, as I told you and my listeners know. I think I read that he started doing that because um Richard Strauss conducted or was in the audience when he was conducting, and he sought yes. his advice. Is that correct
1: I, I heard that indeed from him. I saw a photo uh, in his home in London, a uh, beautiful photo, great photo, uh, where you see actually the the pit of uh, the Staatsoper in, München, in Munich and, uh, and and you see actually Scholti in the pit and right behind him in the first row of the audience uh, Strauss visiting and uh, yes and uh, apparently uh, Strauss did comment uh, about the loudness of the orchestra to Scholti in front of the orchestra and that would have been indeed the, the, the thing that uh, made him think that he should always check himself hmm. about the, uh, the balance and uh, he did that all his life he was always listening and somehow almost um kind of uh, uh conducting rehearsals from the audience screaming what he wanted to do you know and uh and 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 letting his assistant uh just conduct on the podium. Actually, I don't know, I can give you a link later. There is a, a nice little TV news of the time when I, I seated him in, in London, uh, a little two-minute clip that was done for the national news in France, where uh, they interview him, and you can see him uh, doing that exactly. So uh, I'll give you the link, and maybe you can uh, add it to, uh, to this podcast. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun little video, and, and you see how he was doing, and what he, what he t- taught me, I would say, above any other thing is the sacred fire for music. Mm-hmm. Like this man had just a love for music. When we were in London with Rene Fleming and we were doing Don Giovanni Ah you know this big beautiful uh, pianissimo B flat that that she was doing exquisitely perfectly he would still stop and say like well Rene and he was coming to her and he was like let's do that and he was just dreaming and making her think 20 times the same thing just to get something even better. And he was in his 80s at the time. And I thought like, voila, this is what it is. You know, Mm. it's music is like his life was depending on the beauty of his B-flat at that moment. And that's what it it should
0: be. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Assisting. Uh, so you graduate, you leave Paris Conservatoire, you become assistant conductor of the Orchestra Nationale de Lille in '95, and then you do four years in the Kapellmeister system as Kapellmeister of a Deutsche Oper am Rhein. Now the Kapellmeister system has appeared on here three or four times, and every time I've asked this question, um, basically because of what Kevin John Edouze said about it, he said it is brutal the system, uh, the Kapelmeister system. How did you find it that going in there as a pianist, being involved with opera after opera, uh, you know, if you're not actually conducting, you're playing the piano. How did you find it? Brutal is a good word because <laughs> you don't have uh, time to think. You're just, you know,
1: thrown in the pit without rehearsals most of the time. And and uh, you have to go for it. Uh, so, yes, it, it was... Ec- extraordinary for me, uh, because in a very, very short amount of time, I learned a lot of new things, especially to be sovereign and calm and, and just be able to multitask somehow, mm. because everything can happen. It's a, what we call a repertoire house, where indeed the, the titles that are in the repertoire are v- not rehearsed anymore with the orchestra and minimally rehearsed with the, with the singers. So as a pianist myself, I was lucky enough to work with them. And that's how I developed, by the way, the reducing score, you know, uh, at the piano, because I, I kind of didn't like to do the, the vocal score with piano reduction. They were too limited. So I love to just play with a full score. And um, that, 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 that obliged me to learn how to do it quick, efficiently. Mm. And um, and then, indeed, my first bohem, for instance, I mean, it's so scary. You arrive on the pit and... Uh, was without any rehearsals with the orchestra so as a pianist i said i was able to to squeeze a few rehearsals with the singers Mm. still not conducting just just playing the piano but then that's it you go there and um and anything can happen really so so you have to uh to, to be prepared and to be calm and uh, and to to, to to deal with the flow of the, of the performance and um, try to create the right tension at the right moment. So I, I learned a lot about drama, about how to build a longer structure, which you don't have so much in the symphonic world. Uh, and, and yeah, that was really four years where I was learning so many things, so many repertoire. I think I did 25 different titles, including ballet, in uh, in four years so
0: yeah wow Uh, that's a lot of a lot of stuff being learned going into the brain for the first time I mean you know as somebody who doesn't play the piano I would imagine it helps having your pianistic skills that things like that go in a lot quicker than somebody like myself who you know is approaching it purely by looking at the score and not being able to play it through but still that's that's a crazy amount of work I read that during this time Two more names, two more people who you assisted and greatly influenced you, I believe, uh, were Sergei Ozawa and also oh. George Pretra, who's a, another name that has appeared occasionally uh, on the fringes, or maybe is the answer to question four in the 10 questions. But, uh, uh, you know, a, a character of a conductor, if you watch him, <laughs> uh, what was he like to assist and work with? And also Maestro Ozawa. I, I will start, if you may, with Sergei Ozawa. Yes. Uh, what well, I love. I revere him.
1: Um it's a great privilege to know such a man. And I'm very moved speaking about him because I just saw him uh just now a month ago um, in Tokyo I was conducting the NHK orchestra and, and I I I was lucky enough to uh, to see him and uh he's obviously um not in the best health right now but uh, his eyes were absolutely the same with the same Genuine childish enthusiasm and uh, and we could communicate and speak together and that was very precious so uh, in his case uh, I mean I, like Scholte, I must say the the sacred fire for music was also impressive, and it's still the case now. I mean, he recently conducted a rehearsal. Uh, just egmont for a few minutes and uh, and he, he cannot move so much anymore but he, he he you could feel that the love for music is everything that what and his family together makes him still alive today i'm sure that that just live, mm. love for music and um what i love with him was his just way to deal with the movements and uh, to suppress basically any angle uh, that you would have, and and just shape uh, the music in in such a kind of um, you say feline way, like a, yeah, like no, like, like the, just a, uh, that was always just beautiful to look at to start with, and um, and and yeah, and it's his, um, his incredible power and sense of colors. You know, I, I assisted him in some Ravel pieces like L'enfant les Sortilèges. And uh, Leur Espagnol. And we shared actually that double bill, uh, in, in Japan at this wonderful festival where I did conduct Le Espagnol and he was conducting L'Enfant Les Sortilèges. And I was in awe with, with indeed the, the, the very sophisticated way he would shape a phrase and, and, and draw the music, basically, like you would write a wonderful, uh, uh, letter in Japanese. It was mm. really a lot of wah, harmony
0: in in what he's doing. Mm, mm. And Pretra, how was he? I mean, Ah. the the point that's just popped into my head is purely because I've read, corresponding with Carlos, the book by Charles Barber about writing to Carlos Kleiber. And he talks about, Carlos Kleiber talks in the letters about, you know, how he was trying not to be a downbeat conductor, how he... Kleiber would try and beat across the bars. And I, I get the feeling with, as you I've just seen you um, imitate uh, Sergei Zawa, how feline he is. Pretra's Pret is the same. You, you hardly ever see him give a downbeat or, you know, his gestures are very fluid, very feline. Um And that made me think, well, they were both quite similar in what they did to a degree, but, you know, two, I would imagine, very different characters. Very different characters, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, Pet was very, very, very
1: French in in all what it means, good and bad. Mm. Uh, 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 He has this Latin character erupting of intensity. What I love with him, I think he had one excess of one quality. And strangely enough, I think that for to be a conductor and a successful conductor, often it's better to have an excess of one quality than being kind of good at everything. And in his case, it was an absolutely fabulous sense of phrasing, of phrasing Mm. one line. So uh, first encounter was Turandot in Paris Opera, and I was assisting him for that. And the rehearsal with the choir that he made of the Paris Opera choir, I I will never forget in my entire life, you know, um, because it was just um, an incredible sense of phrasing, which was not really a, a rubato, but just just a a way to shape um, whatever the density under this line is, he doesn't care so much and you would see him conduct, you know, something where the full orchestra plays piano piano, or one instrument, kind of the same gesture, just inviting to just um, uh, once again drawing, which I love, you know, drawing the music and, and showing the 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 shape of of a line and it was and and just you know if you do it like if I may say a little bit square and stupidly, it's like da 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 so three ace knots after a half rest and then yeah. sixteen so but in his world, just a simple phrase became like just a sense of the agogic between the notes and the agogic uh, um, that would you know agogic meaning I think deforming a little bit the, the speed of a, of a phrase depending on the interval between the notes. So anyway that is extraordinary. And I suppose that's why Callas loved him so much because Callas had that. Mm. And I think he knew she was in good hands, literally, uh because he would understand, you know, a ta, ta, ta,
0: ta. Mm.
1: all this bel canto, that phrase that needs such a refined sense of agogic. He had it naturally, like mm. it was
0: incredible. Uh,
1: so, so that was really very impressive from Georges Prêtre and, uh, uh, and and his totally uncompromising way to conduct the phrasing, whatever happened in the in the orchestra.
0: What, what I, I often find interesting about you know people who spe- immerse themselves in opera so much in the capella master system, and you know, you've just talked about working with these great people is the next time next things we see are pretty all symphony orchestras. If I if I list where you've been, you know, in your major titles, um, I mean, yes, you made your Santa Fe Opera debut in '99, but then no, you know, seven years between '05 and 2012 as the music director of Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And then between 11 and 16, the chief conductors of Stuttgart Radio Symphony Orchestra. And between 15 and 21, you've just finished there. Uh, no, was it 22? It would be this year, wasn't it? Um, at uh, a Music Director of Brussels Phil. Um, symphony orchestras. I'm and, gonna... and if I may, if I may I,
1: I, but they are very, very, very dear to my heart. Uh, six years as a principal guest of the Philadelphia Orchestra.
0: Ah, well, I was coming to America, uh, to, 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 use, to use a phrase because i wanted to ask you you know your six years principal guest of philadelphia orchestra and in 2019 you became music director of st louis symphony orchestra where why you not? are now based that's, that's the, i that's really me. want really wanted to ask you because you have been immersed in three big systems as a chief conductor so you've been a, a, a chief conductor of a german radio orchestra and with with all of that brings of a US orchestra, which again, as a music director, is a much different thing. It's not just about concerts, rehearsals, it's everything else. And also the UK, which is, you know, that's partly funded by the Arts Council and the, in and the UK. Yeah. Yeah, it's in between. What were the challenges that you found going from one to the other? Um, and did you feel that you had good help with the managements around you and helping you out changing? I mean, was going to a US orchestra a shock No or you know knowing that you would have to go and um what's the phrase press the flesh of the you know of the the donors and the and the philanthropists how how's it been going between those three big things it's a very interesting question and i don't really know
1: where to start because maybe i should say very pretentiously that what helped me in all of these situations is that i can't help but being myself mm. So, um, so luckily, in whatever situation I am, music is first, and 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 the real soul time is kind of the same everywhere. I just want to achieve uh, uh, the best I can uh, with the orchestra I have in front of me and myself, with adapting to the repertoire. So, this is actually the the key core of of, of my activity. That the moment I'm just myself. So I would say. I'm kind of the same everywhere. I don't really. I'm not a bowler. I should certainly, but able to ad, adjust to change who I am mm. so much. Now, indeed, what is very, very, very different is um, uh, the culture and the character of each places and uh, and 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 uh, how music is perceived. And uh, uh, it's very true that that it's so different to see uh, how you program from one place to another and what is important in one place and uh, and how in europe um the artists sometimes are really uh, in their ivory tower and and feel uh, everything is due to them including for the conductor you know because the institution exists they are funded they are stable somehow uh, that's the feeling we 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 have anyway and um and then when you go to america you see like it's it's a private affair you have to just convince everybody to Give you the funding that will make music happen, and there you are involved in a much more social role mm. uh, so um, it it is uh, challenging. I think the the what I love is to speak different languages so uh, i I'm I was very fortunate indeed, because at 18, I spoke almost no language, a uh, little bit of English, but at a very low level, uh, even worse than now, let's say. <laughs> uh, 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 and so I, I could learn Italian and German, a little bit of Russian and English, just traveling the world. And that that has been the, the biggest impact to me, because the more you can communicate, the less you fear people, and, and, and therefore, the more you engage in the... Fruitful, you know, collaboration.
0: Mm.
1: That's a, the first thing is, and maybe, maybe I'm slightly different in um, in different languages. I have a very good friend, composer Guillaume connaisson who uh, saw me conduct in different places, and 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 he says always, "Wow, when you're in America, there is a it's kind of a bursting enthusiasm and kind of very outgoing personality." Which seems to be a little bit different when I'm in Germany, for instance, or I mean, so may, maybe maybe he said I, I I have a different way to uh, to uh, to interact um, uh, when I speak a different language, but I don't feel that myself. I have the feeling I'm the same everywhere, and I came to uh, really love the American system because it obliges you somehow to really ask you the question why mm. uh, why we do that why we program this piece for whom and and uh, and you really have a lot of feedback you know and, yeah. and so uh, so uh, I mean that, that has been for me very inspiring and and uh, uh, right now in in you know I just passed 50 by the way so uh, I feel it's time to give back a lot what I received and uh to maybe do more for a community through music than just offering some uh, hopefully good concerts, uh, but just really try to to, uh, to interact more with the meaning of music and how it can help a community, help people to unite. And uh, this is a, the big new challenge for me living here in mm. St. Louis is, uh, is to uh, develop indeed what is out of the podium, and can just make the world a better place basically
0: Mm. it's funny i I think you're a year younger than me i'm 52 um and during the pandemic i turned 50 and i yeah i mean you know starting up this podcast but then also now starting my patreon page and talking to young conductors and giving them lessons and advice and i feel yeah the time is right i feel the time is now for you know i've got not only my my time as a conductor to talk about, but my 22 years as a player to talk about that, you know, conductors need to hear about. And it's funny how it's it's similar time in our lives that we feel that we want to do that. I wanted to just linger on one point very briefly, which is you talked about the, you know, being in ivory towers and expecting the institution just to be there for us all and just... But of course, you were chief conductor of an orchestra that ceased to exist uh, in Stuttgart. Uh, the ivory tower was knocked down or or it merged with another ivory tower to form a bigger ivory tower if you use my the silly metaphor how was that and and you know horrible yeah i'm sure yeah horrible hmm.
1: horrible because uh here we are uh there were two radio orchestras indeed and uh, uh the freiburg, ba- freiburg baden baden one and the stuttgart one and uh the full radio um, structure, I mean, and, and TV actually, the, the full huge uh, structure for which the orchestras are a very small part, just decide to do some savings because, I mean, they just analyzed there were some uh, demographic studies and they knew what money will enter from the demographic. And they so every part of this huge TV radio organization was having some cuts and somehow the orchestras were sanctuarized pretty long they were kind of lucky and in their indeed ivory tower for a long time but then suddenly out of the blue okay that's it it's happening now and um that was brutal because uh i learned that it was just um uh, voted in such a way from the radio people itself that it was basically impossible to really imagine that it could just be cancelled and um, both orchestras uh, fought in their own way very, very strongly and uh, myself as well. Uh, some Sometimes it was for some orchestra very, very, very outgoing, very much in the press. Uh, for us, it was maybe more uh, trying to, to get it from inside of the organization and uh, uh, it was a different type of fight, but it was nevertheless really a, a very hard fight and um, it's been a defeat. So mm-hmm. in those two orchestras had to, uh, to merge and it's a very strange defeat uh, because um, it is true that the orchestra in Stuttgart somehow got um, uh, more funding mm-hmm. Resulting from that, and 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 it was a kind of uh, development for them more than the other one. So mm. the other one was really the one that I think we can say brutally uh, was killed, and it's horrible. And I, I felt so bad about this situation, and uh, that's why I, of course, uh, left uh, the that institution and and would not stay. Because it's 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 you know it's impossible and it's it it was a very sad story I have to say you know Mm. and um, for me what was very sad was to see that um, that all along there was not really an opportunity to change the story it was decided at a at a higher level in this as I said unorganisation and and it was cynical somehow I could feel that there was no um, no way out and. That's the thing, you know, you just always hope and dream for or a way to explain that orchestras have a soul. I believe in the soul of an orchestra and that mm. you cannot merge two souls in one like that. And no. in, in any case, very difficult. And it still is.
0: Well, I mean, I, 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 br- I brought it up because, you know, in, in the 1970s, there were major cuts in the BBC and the BBC is always under attack in the UK. And you know, I wonder how long it'll be before such similar conversations may be had in the UK. And I, you know, it's, it's a worry, because as you said, uh, absolutely, the took the words out of my mouth, every orchestra has its own soul, its own feeling. And I'm lucky enough, I'm one of the few conductors who's conducted all of the BBC orchestras, and they are all different. And they are all got their own soul, and they've all got their own way of being. And uh, yeah, that's it, it, why I wanted to linger on it to talk about the you know, we mustn't just ex- expect that they're going to be there in fifty, a hundred years' time. We have to safeguard them and think about it. I have one message about that, if you if you may, mm. um, is that
1: I think we improved the last twenty years, thirty years immensely. the The presentation of an orchestra, I mean, and we improve the welcome, the programming, the digital contents. I mean, everything has been improved quite tremendously. But for me. The only way for our art form to survive is just to offer a new repertoire that will please the co-audience as much as it please them to listen to the great master works of the past. Mm. So we just have to have a relevant uh, new repertoire that will stand the test of time and just make want- people want to... To buy a ticket for them, for this repertoire, as much as as they want to buy a ticket for a Tchaikovsky symphony or a Beethoven symphony, and um, that is really a uh, uh, one thing that is for me essential. The second one is, and it's related to that as well, that I really hope that the conductors, uh, including myself, but also the artistic directors of orchestras, continue to strive with passion and curiosity, because I heard too many times now, and it really starts to really bother me. Uh artistic directors to say like, ah, we have to have in this program more famous pieces because the audience will not come otherwise. And I think it's totally wrong. Like mm. it's a wrong approach uh, to presume what the audience wants to hear and, and to not be more just um passionate uh, about a piece and say like, well... This piece, I just love it. Yes, the audience doesn't know it, but I so love it that I want to share it. This is the right energy, mm. and uh, and I feel that more and more rarely, the the the, the knowledge to start with, and uh, and the passion to just carry the risk of presenting some pieces that are not yet as famous as others, or um, anyway. So the main thing for me is to uh, to continue to develop the repertoire that we play, both from the past and especially from today.
0: Very, very true. Hear, hear, I agree. Stefan, there is one question I ask every conductor and you'll be no different. And actually, funnily enough, we did this almost together simultaneously for the last Queen Elizabeth competition. We ha- both had to learn a piece by Jörg Vidman that was written specifically for that competition um, because I rehearsed it and then you came in and, and conducted the, the final rehearsals and the, and the finals. How do you learn a score? Uh, I know you're a very good pianist and uh, do you sit at the piano and go through it for the piano? And when you learn a score... Are you uh, have you taken on board any of Schulte's scribblings and writings? Because that's the one thing that has appeared before is how his scores are completely covered with writing. I use a lot of red and blue back pencils, but do you use any pencil at all? What's your system, and how do you go about learning a score? Yes, I do not use
1: uh, color pencil. Uh, I just use uh, black pencil only, and I write um, reasonably. Uh, actually, it's funny because I. Uh, I actually this is just cause I'm I'm relearning now. So because I'm doing that soon. Okay. So that's yeah. So the score that I have, I wrote nothing except some little Boeings. Yeah, am um, just to uh, but but no no entrance and I think
0: that that um, was the eighth. That was the eighth symphony, dear listener. He showed me. Yes. I, I, <laughs> I saw the violin parts where I recognised. If he'd shown me a trombone part, I was sunk. But it was a violin part.
1: <laughs> and I don't know. Actually, I that's really unprepared. So I'm I'm um, looking. So that is Sabbath Matter of Poulain, which I yeah. will conduct very soon too. And uh, I mean, there is here and there some boring, some entrance, like you know, like oboe. Oh like yeah. I just. Uh, uh, I put a little bit of translation of of the Latin text yeah. here. Uh, I don't know. So I don't write a lot, I have to say. Um, uh, no, what I do uh, sometimes is just to to indeed write the, the beating pattern. It's a difficult one because I get a little bit uh, you know older and I don't see so well. So sometimes I write in bigger you know, size, you know, like... Mm. Uh, five, eight, and then six, eight, and seven, eight, and just, just, and sometimes with a triangle and a bar, if it's one, two, three, one, two, one, two, or one, two, one, two, three, one, if can, so that I would put it just to be safe if I distracted that I can still beat the right thing somehow. Um, but uh, the way I learn uh, is very old school, I, w- I would say. Uh, I indeed come to the piano and play it. And that is fascinating because... Uh, If you listen to a score with a recording and you, I suppose your eyes just go to some important thing, like an inventory of what you hear. So you hear this melody, this entrance, this accompaniment. And of course you can, you know, go from one to the other quickly, but it's still your eyes just go to different parts and totally I think blurry some others. Mm. Meanwhile, when you are at the piano, you just have to put your finger on some keys And then you're obliged to read all the part of the score that you may not read naturally uh, when you oversee the score with a recording. And it's amazing. I found always uh, so many mistakes, which I would never notice, even on all score, uh, Mm. if I was not doing that. And... And it's fascinating. And so I'm very uh, pretentiously always proud when when I, I, I meet the composer, living composer of a new piece, because I always say like, okay. And normally I found like, you know, many, like well, I mean like 20, 30, 40 mistakes in the score that they even didn't see themselves. And uh, uh, it, it's a good feeling for me because very flattering because it looks like I, I really studied uh, in details and they, they are so often impressed to discover mistakes they didn't see themselves. So the thing for me is if you're a pianist, just do that, just mm-hmm. do that. The other thing I would recommend um, is, uh, well, Certainly, never to uh, to listen to one recording. If you do document yourself, which is fine, I think we have the opportunity now easily to uh, to listen to go for the I think the historical recording that can give you a feeling of where we come from at least. Mm. So I, I basically almost only listen to things from before the Second World War. Uh, actually, I love uh, treasure old recording, and um, and and not only one, and just you know just look at some specific thing but don't just listen to it just you know from a to z because that will give you the wrong the wrong approach and you will not and i see if i may say a lot of um, conductors sometimes for me that are just making an inventory uh, of the events that happen one after the other but they're not really to me just create the 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 roots of the music just let the music create from 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 in, from in, inside of it and uh, uh, it sounds a bit external, let's say, a bit commenting, mm. and uh, not really just embracing the the you know the, the the roots that of the tree that is where it comes from. The orchestra is doing the tree. You just need to just give the soil and give what it needs to 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 just you know bloom. And uh, uh, and w- what I would like as well to say is is w- when you don't listen to a recording, which is much better, like really just in silence then which is very difficult i mean you know it's a concentration issue you have to concentrate then just no don't stop like read it in the tempo uh, because i think if you uh, if you lose a little bit too much the flow then you don't see the structure and it doesn't come to you inside of your body so i would say try to imagine that the score is not a page turn but is. Like if you were putting all those pages on an immense wall, one after the other. And so you have the very much big panorama of a piece. And you just don't stop walking, looking at the at this panorama. And of course, if you if you don't have the help of the real sound from the orchestra playing itself or recording, yes, there will be some moments a bit more blurry than others where you're not sure you really hear perfectly what's happening, let's be honest, but but continue, just continue to, to keep in tempo and, and continue to, just because that will give you the real existence of the piece which is only alive in motion, mm.
0: not as an object to look at. Oh, I agree. I, I did exactly the same thing this morning. Um, I just opened a score for a brand new viola concerto, world premiere coming up in October, and I went through it at just bar by bar in tempo as I went through it, and I realised that I'd got some of the tempos wrong because uh, I, they had to be wrong because the, the architecture was all wrong and you know and, you, and so, so yeah it, it it's definitely the way to do it I you know some conductors are you know flick through it quickly and then go smaller and smaller I think with a new piece or one that you don't know or you can't get hold of a recording of what you've just said is perfect just sing and listen your way through a score and, and yes. you, I think you will find... You know the the structure a lot easier because you know you'll sit there thinking well actually this section feels too long have i got this section right or wrong or is it the composer's fault or yeah you get into it really quickly that way mm. absolutely true
1: um, you the world
0: sing. Mm.
1: not only because i come from you know the vocal choir and opera career that i was mainly an opera conductor at the start of my career but everything should sing a rhythm should sing you know mm. like the world should sing like whatever it is uh even whatever long tenuto should still sing mm. like everything is about that that's really the expression of life of love i mean you know the first thing we hear from our mother is maybe a, a song you know so it's just uh, what is in us and that's what makes us human i think it's just this
0: line dear listener please don't reach for that little button that advances this episode on by 30 seconds just because you know i'm about to talk about patreon because over recent months my patreon page has expanded and you may be interested to know how the supporters club of this podcast is developing there's over 25 hours of interviews with musicians composers soloists and managers as well as 23 bonus mini episodes that accompany this podcast I've written an article on score marking, a set of diaries from my trips Guest Conducting Abroad. I've started a series of articles on the art of programming, and I'm about to start a new series on string playing for those non-string playing conductors. Did you know that you can even have conducting lessons from myself? All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash Podium, and from just £5 a month you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Stefan Denev. Stefan, it's 10 questions time. Uh, Every single conductor has answered the same 10 questions over the last two and a half years, and you will be no different. And I start with the first two, which is, what sound or noise do you love? And what sound or noise do you hate? <laughs> uh, the sound that I love the most is certainly the
1: silence, because then I can hear what is singing in my head. Mm. So that is what I like the most. And the sound I hate the most is uh, screaming. I think just uh, just shouting and screaming always is something that shocks me, uh, that, you know, you can do with a voice the most incredible, divine, you know, sound, and so if you were, uh, if you miss you that and scream at somebody, I think it's horrible, and I do it sometimes, but uh, I hate
0: it. I agree, and sometimes it can be, you know, people who are seemingly enjoying themselves screaming, and you just think, what, oh. yeah, uh, because it doesn't matter, it takes you a, a millisecond to work out whether the scream is joyful or absolutely, actually in terror, or or in pain, and, and and it's just that human condition of it, it. It's designed for us to turn our heads to find out what's going on. Um, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's annoying, annoying sound.
1: By the way, just just for you, uh, not for the thing that, uh, you know, the famous story of Mahler discovering the Niagara Falls, and no? saying, "Oh yes, he visited the falls in Niagara," and uh, and he said, he would have said apparently, "Endlich fortissimo." Finally, fortissimo, <laughs> and, uh, and just now we had the most violent electric storms I think I ever experienced in Saint Louis, and one huge lightning fell on uh, the tower. Tower we were sitting, and there was a screeching sound, and then an explosion that made every 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 window tremble and this, the whole thing tremble. And the, actually the power went out right away, and, and it's possibly the loudest ever sound i experienced and this one i loved there was a feeling of power i was in awe of this incredible power so uh, i did love actually this endless fortissimo sound as well
0: (laughs) (laughs) number three if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing (laughs) it depends if i am with my family
1: or without my family Mm. so if i'm without my family Uh, A big part of it will be Skyping them and speaking with them, uh, because that's what is most important for me when I'm uh, abroad. Uh, But if I am with them indeed, then it's just enjoying life, uh, eating well out, go for a walk in a great place. During COVID, my wife and I, we did the walk o'clock every day where we had the you know at five we were going for one and a half hour of walking and so yeah just meeting friends I mean very simple things that make you feel alive.
0: Question four who would be a favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? <laughs> I won't surprise you saying that I would love
1: to uh to see uh, Carlos Kleiber because I missed him when he was alive and uh as everybody else, I suppose I in awe of him personifying music in all his body. And that's fascinating. Um, I really, 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 really loved, uh, uh, of course, the people I work with, like Scholti, Ozawa, Prêtre, et cetera. But um, there is one man we didn't uh, speak about yet, which is Carlo Maria Giulini. Mm. And I played the piano three times for him. And, uh, I saw this man just believing in miracles, like miracle of other people, miracles of the music itself, and just doing what appears to be nothing but having the emerge part of the iceberg being so infinitely big. And uh, this the soul presence of Giuliani really inspired me uh, so much. And I would add uh, that I would love to see. Uh, Mahler as a conductor mm. and and another one you know I love Rachmaninoff and Rachmaninoff was very impressed by Artur Nikish and uh, uh, and apparently Nikish was very 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 special and so I would love to uh, to see what Artur Nikish was doing for instance but well, there are plenty others.
0: Mm. Well Nikish of course is given the title of being the father of the modern conductor. You know, that was what he was famous for. Before then, like Mahler, who I agree with, I'd love to have seen Mahler conduct. But Mahler was a composer and a conductor. And Wagner was a composer and conductor, and whatever. But Nickish is... And there's that one tiny fragment of silent film, isn't there, of him conducting. And he looks fascinating. I would have loved to have seen him conduct. Kleiber, no, nobody's surprised anymore with him. Um, at all. But Carl, but Giulini, I love his recordings. Absolutely love his recordings. Uh, there's a Brook narrator of his with the Vienna Phil that I go back to over and over and over again. Absolutely love his recordings. We must go on to the more difficult one, Stefan. Question five: and who would be a favorite current conductor or conductors? <laughs> Look, it is a too
1: difficult question because I have so many people that I really love as conductors and as friends so I don't yes. want to offend anybody not not uh, speaking about them um so so it is a very too difficult question to uh
0: to 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 make a list because whatever you say there will be a kind of order well I'll I'll, I'll let you know that in the past I have let people give the answer I can't give an answer because there are too many because I think you're right I think that it is quite a difficult Question to answer, and if you give the reason because there are too many, that's fine. Only once have I had somebody who did refused to answer the question, but didn't give me a reason why. Um, but the reason being that there are too many, I really don't mind um, at all because uh, I know it's very difficult. Especially if, I mean, after this, I've now got over a hundred friends I can count as people I could, you know, I've spoken to on Zoom calls. So I you mean, know, it'd be difficult for me to answer that now.
1: <laughs> yes, I, I I do feel very uncomfortable to choose uh, indeed within all the people I admire and people I know as friends mm-hmm. and uh, it would be very different. let's say, okay, I will still give you just one name now because there was somebody coming in my mind who uh, uh, I love uh, uh, both as an artist and, and as a person and it's been too long since I saw him so I would love to see a concert of Tony Papano tomorrow and uh, uh, yes, he's, he's very dear to my heart and so it's a little message to him,
0: hey Tony, I hope you're well <laughs> hope to see you soon well he, I, I interviewed him way back when it was about episode 53 or so uh, and he was equally charming uh lovely lovely man and he's somebody i, I now he's going to be music director of the london symphony orchestra i think i'm going to go and watch some concerts and, and... Yes, you're so, right yeah yes they live so now mm, so yeah absolutely perfect choice very good
1: oh it's ah. a nice it's a very nice man you know he was um uh, he, he performed uh, very, very generously and kindly for my wedding, so uh, ah. I will never forget that. So yes, him and Pam are wonderful people, and uh, I'm I'm sad to not see him more.
0: Question number six is: What is the hardest work you've ever conducted?
1: Well, if you had asked me uh, about 25 years ago, I could uh, then say a long list of uh, pieces that were. Uh, very scary technically yes and, uh, luckily with a bit more experience and a bit more trust with our wonderful musicians that we play with um i think the technical aspect is not anymore something that uh, give me sleepless nights yeah. but um what is maybe for me the most difficult thing today is uh, to really find the emotional journey of the piece. And uh, especially, let's say, uh, Mahler Symphony, for instance, where you have to really be in the brain of Mahler. And uh, I more and more try to uh, to, to understand the, the psychological context of a composer when he or she wrote a piece and, uh, and try to understand what is the message. So for me, the most difficult piece today is when I don't find this message and uh, I don't feel I'm connecting
0: with the in a reason the piece was written. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, if, if we're doing world premieres and things you, nowadays, you can just email and, and ask and say, you know, what, is there anything in this that you're trying to convey extra above and through the score, or is there a hidden story, or is there? A, but as you said, you're going back to Mahler, and you know, we're, we can only go with what letters and what people have said, and and to try and inhabit the head of of any composer is, is that yeah. it's difficult, and and with some pieces. We're human beings. Some pieces you get instantly, and you can almost form your own story. And then other pieces it takes longer. Um, it can take five, six, seven, eight, ten listenings, and maybe just the same. Even actually conducting them sometimes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's not easy. Uh, I I agree with you. It really isn't. Uh, that would be for me the most difficult thing
1: today, really. And uh, and and unfortunately, when I'm conducting myself, if I if I don't, I hate to be a spectator of myself. Hmm. You know I love to be in the flow with the music, and then everything take makes sense, and then you you build, you know, um, the way I make music, I think is very narrative. I always have a a kind of storyline, even if it's extremely abstract, but it's just it's just really um forces that are uh theatrical let's say you know like something and then something responding to it and then something conflicting and then so building something and then uh so it's it's very much a kind of conversation and uh and sometimes if i don't feel that if i don't feel this connection with this uh dramaturgic part of the piece uh and if i feel
0: myself empty of that it's a horrible feeling when traveling abroad to conduct what item could you not leave home without well, some of my uh, tails and concert clothes because I'm such a difficult
1: size, I'm a big size in many ways, that it would be so horrible if uh, I lose that to a... I could not find anything in the shop that would fit. So mm. that's uh, anxiety each time. I'm happy to see my luggage arrive on the belt. But actually, um, I always travel um, with the Schubert four-hands in F because I adore this piece and I can actually tell you I have an incredible list of pianists I played with in backstage area sometimes on stage for fun sometimes in concerts but uh, um, recently with uh, Anne-Marie McDermott actually on in a concert in in Vail Colorado but but uh, I love this piece and it's always with me and I always bother some great pianists like hey do you have a minute to play that with me so uh, yes I'm always traveling with the fantasy in
0: F of Schubert that is a brilliant answer uh, didn't see it coming. Uh, what a brilliant answer. I've not had anything like that before, and that's that's wonderful. I mean, it would that, that would be like, well, I mean, I I don't take our violin with me, but I me mean, traveling with the the book of 44 Bartok duos, that, you know, would you mind playing the duos with me? That's really great. That's yeah. um, and and also somebody, you know, who's of a bigger size. I'll put it, you know, bluntly about myself. If my jacket didn't turn out, I don't think I could buy anything off the peg um to fit me. Um it's scary, huh? It's scary. It is, yeah. Um yeah, it would have to be, you know, whatever I'd, I'd turned up in. But yeah, I, I love I love the yeah. Schubert answer. It it only happened me once that it was not
1: I and mean, luckily, luckily I thought wood. Um Touch my piano. Uh, I I had delayed luggage, but luckily my tails always arrive on time for the concert. Luckily, oh. we're not soloists, you know, playing the same day or the next day, so uh, so the rehearsal time helped me to to get it on time. But um, my first concert in uh, where was it Saratoga, I think, a summer concert with the Philadelphia Orchestra. I had no idea that they play with white jacket. You know this white jacket? This, yeah, uh, yeah, James Bond. Yeah, yeah. It looks like uh, the love boat, you know, a command and or whatever. Uh, so, so, so I could have conducted, of course, with the tails I had, but, but actually, we went to uh, to find a, a rental white jacket, and it was horrible, and I felt ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, I hope there's no not any photos of this
0: concert because it's uh, it was not looking great. <laughs> number 8 what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor
1: i would say maybe the loneliness sometimes because mm. people believe you are always surrounded by people but you know there are the old times you know the morning breakfast or or some evenings where the soloist that you like is not there yet, so you cannot bother he or she to uh, have dinner with you. And um, I'm a very social beast, so uh, I love to be surrounded by uh, by friends. And 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 so so that's sometimes the uh, the thing that I suffer with loneliness.
0: It's not been mentioned for a long time on the podcast. Um, I think Daniel. What about, Harding, you? what about yours? Uh, I think Daniel Harding mentioned loneliness way back when. Um, I, I mine was <laughs> uh mine was to do with hostility that this old school you know them and us between players and conductors, having been both a player and a conductor um oh, you know, that that hostility that still exists in certain places uh you know it, as as a, as recent as uh january twenty twenty I had a very hostile um rehearsal process with an orchestra that shall remain nameless uh and uh, yeah I, I found find that very difficult but i agree with you about the loneliness as well there's nothing worse than dinner for one uh you know going to a restaurant and saying yeah table for one please you know um and yeah it, it it's it's not it's not nice it's not easy and it's something i think oh. every every person who wants to become a conductor needs to know about it's not all parties receptions you know uh, champagne after the concert it's you know that there are times when you literally are on your own a lot of the time the the rehearsal's finished you look round and the orchestra's gone. And it's just you and, you know, back to your hotel and, you know, fill the rest of the day yourself. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt?
1: <laughs> to make my mother happy, I should have been a doctor. Ah, uh-huh. me to be a doctor and uh, uh, I've not been a doctor. So sometimes I can get away with it like... Maybe music can save some souls, let's hope. But let's be honest, I totally admire the real
0: doctors and the people that save life for real. All my admiration. And finally, question 10. And I did watch an interview this morning, which uh, I I heard you say that you enjoyed cocktails. So let's see if cocktails appear. And also, let's, you know, stereotypical talk about Frenchmen and cuisine. So I'm looking forward to the answer of this. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? <laughs> well, I hope I, the world would
1: end in presence of my beloved wife. So I would like her to indeed do what on of her apple chicken that I love, the mango chutney uh, chicken as well. Um, so something that she cooks wonderfully well. Um, otherwise, I'm a big fan of uh, couscous, uh, the real Moroccan couscous. And I would love to have a really wonderful big couscous, uh, I love um, wine, obviously. So, I mean, we we would open a, a good bottle for sure, and it will be from Burgundy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I will also um, have some cocktails. I'm I'm a big fan of the simple margarita cocktails, but recently I've been taught how to do an exquisite Manhattan. So uh, I think I will have the that one in the great way i was taught to do it so yeah i think i will just i'm afraid drink and 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 eat too much knowing that uh, i would
0: not have a hangover because uh, there will not be a next day <laughs> oh, brilliant answer um i would hope in the very near future that Uh, having spent quite a lot of time chatting to you online, both for this interview and also, as we said, for the Queen Elizabeth competition, that we bumped into each other somewhere and you taught me how to make a wonderful Manhattan and we carried on chatting. It's been wonderful, Stefan, and I hope to see you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Merci. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with the first conductor to be born in Sri Lanka to appear on the podcast. He grew up and studied in Germany, where he entered the famous Kapellmeister system, working at two German theatres, before becoming the music director of the Landestheater Salzburg in 2019. But until then, bye-bye.